it's beginning to feel a lot like climate change funding is not yet something that Edmontonians support broadly. This week, city manager Andre Corbald let us know that the majority of Edmontonians aren't on board for climate change funding. Debate over. Thanks, Andre. Plus, the Edmonton Police Service has a plan to eliminate its deficit, but it's a secret plan. And councillors table nearly 70 capital budget amendments. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 202. We're close to the end of the year, just about wrapping up, and councillors feeling the end in sight, spent the majority of their meeting on Wednesday debating how they would debate future motions. Were they actually in private getting told how this is all going to work? Yes. So they debated in private and then they went in public and debated the debate that they had in private about the (laughs) debate that they would have. In true city council fashion. Yes. Now that sounds like a joke, but we've got three more coming in the rapid fire segment. Edmonton's municipal standards and community peace officers lack proper, effective dispatch and performance targets, according to a new city auditor's report congratulating them on being almost police. Alberta plans to import 5 million bottles of children's medication from Turkey-based Atabay Pharmaceuticals and Fine Chemicals. The medication, which has yet to receive Health Canada approval, will help children potentially break their fevers while they wait hours to get into overcrowded emergency rooms. For adults, Daniel Smith still recommends keeping with the policy outlined by former Premier Jason Kenney. Adults should drink a good budget whiskey like Jameson while waiting for their exhausted doctors to see them. Edmonton Ice District has announced a fan park featuring three outdoor rinks where fans, after spending $600 to get sloshed on three Bud Lights in Rogers Place, can drunkenly skate and stumble around on the ice before falling on their face, an activity better known as being an oiler during a playoff game. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by the Well-Endowed Podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted and produced by Andrew Paul and Lisa Pruden, and the podcast explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The ECF helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts or at thewellendowedpodcast.com. We talked a little bit last week about how your favorite part of the budget process was the written counselor Q&A, where we got a lot of good data from city administration in a very accessible and easy to use format. And I love budget time because we've got this big budget binder. We've got hundreds of pages outlining this is what the city is going to do for the next four years. It's very information dense and it's top heavy. We can read and we can understand and learn. Except, of course, if uh, budget plans are kept secret. And cue up, topic about the police. Yes, of course, when it comes to police, it seems uh, always the case anyway that it's going to be in private. And so this week, council considered a strategy to repay or pay down the outstanding budget deficit that the Edmonton Police Service has been carrying. And we don't know the details of that because it was kept private, at least until sometime next year, which I will explain in a moment. Uh, But this came about because uh, after a a few years of surpluses in 2019-2020, the EPS rung up a huge deficit in 2021 for various reasons. They reported at the end of the year a little over $7 million loss. 
what happens when the Edmonton Police Service has either a surplus or a loss is it goes into something called the EPS Operating Reserve. So this is a separate account that was created alongside the implementation of the funding formula in 2018. There's a policy for this reserve, of course, and it says that if it should fall into deficit, that a strategy needs to be brought forward with the police commission to city council for approval, and they have to repay it within three years. And so that's what came to city council this week. And there's a couple of interesting things that stood out to me. One is that in May of this year, Troy, the police service was projecting that they were going to lose another two and a half million dollars. They were going to end the year in deficit by another two and a half million dollars by the end of the calendar year, which would have you know further increased the deficit, which was by that point already almost three million dollars. So we'd be at you know more than five million dollars in the hole that would have to come from somewhere, would have to be paid back. Just you know a few months later in September, they're now projecting that uh, they will actually end up with a little bit of a surplus, a little over $2 million for the calendar year, which will be used to pay down the deficit and reduce it to about $850,000. So, I mean, the numbers are whatever. It's a podcast. It's hard to put the numbers straight in your head. What was interesting to me is they did like a huge flip from a deficit for the year to an increase for the year. And I wondered why that would be. Why would there be this big change? Any guesses, Troy? Well, um, could it have something to do with all the money we gave to the EPS? <laughs> right you are, it does. In fact, it has everything to do specifically with October 7th, which is when council approved the funding formula, at least for 2023. One of the things that funding formula included was salary settlements. So there's an ongoing discussion between the union and the city about how much officers are going to make. And when that process, that collective bargaining process is done, there's a certain amount of money that needs to be paid. Prior to October 7th, the Edmonton Police Service thought that they would have to cover those salary settlements. And so they started putting a little bit of money aside in order to cover the cost of that. And then on October 7th, when council approved this funding formula, it shifted responsibility for that to the city itself. And so the police service was able to say, actually, this money that we've been putting aside, we don't have to put aside anymore because the city's going to pay for that. Therefore, we can use the money we've already put aside and stick it into the deficit to reduce that deficit. So when you were speculating off the top about when this report may become public, uh, was that speculation based on we can't reveal this information because it would upset the collective bargaining process? This is the reason, the argument in this case for why they kept that report private is because they don't want the amounts that are in there to be made public. They don't want the information, the details about the strategy to be made public until that collective bargaining process is done. So Councillor Rutherford, who asked a bunch of questions about this at, uh, at Council, also made this request and amendment to the motion to ask the clerk to work with the commission, the police commission, to review in quarter two of 2023 whether or not they can make this report public at that time, because they think by then collective bargaining will be sorted. And it was interesting during the debate because Councillor Principe was one of the only other people who was asking questions. And every one of her questions seemed to have one goal in mind, which is to keep this information private for as long as possible. She even asked Commission uh, Chair John McDougall if this would be detrimental to make it public. And and he said, no, to the contrary, we think it's good. Uh, we, we are always advocating for transparency and we think it should be public as soon as we can release it. I mean, when you're cosplaying as a counselor who's elected to care only about the police without actually reading and understanding the documentation, you know, it might sound like you always have to agree with the police. But 
it's important to actually ask the police beforehand what you're agreeing to. <laughs> I suppose that's the takeaway there. No doubt. So as I said, Councillor Rutherford asked most of the questions about this. And her main question was, look, you put money aside for most of the year. Why didn't you just keep doing that until you got the deficit to zero instead of, well, she argues there's no actual plan in the strategy that is private to pay down the remaining 850000 within three years. The police basically have said, trust us, is, is what she's indicated with her questions and, and her comments on the record. So that's kind of interesting. It's the salary settlements that really stood out to me, Troy, and that's what will come back in the new year. Because of course, if you recall, when we were talking about the funding formula, Mayor Sohi in particular was quite concerned about salary settlements, and now we know why. What is the point of the policy requiring the EPS to pay down the deficit within three years when it appears, just using this year's money as an example, there's wild swings and the EPS seems to be able to cover anything quite easily. It didn't seem like this salary settlement was a particular stressor on the Edmonton police. It seems like they were handling it. And yet now they got this extra boatload of cash, which we don't even know about yet. When we were talking about increases for the police funding formula, the salary settlement was this nebulous question. And it looks like we won't even know until next year how much money we're giving the police on top of all the other money we've agreed to. I guess we have to assume at this point that it's going to be, you know, something smaller than what they put aside for the year. So, you know, up to $5 million, maybe, let's say, which is not insignificant, although it might feel that way, given the amount of money that we continually give to police. And just to your point about the wild swings, when this policy came into play and they created the reserve, it was alongside the four-year funding formula. And the whole point of that entire exercise was to try to provide predictable, stable funding. You know, the reserve seemed like a sensible thing at the time to help address things that happen that are out of their control in any given year that might cause a surplus or or a deficit. As we know, that has not remained the case, that things are stable and reliable. And, uh, and we do see these wild swings. Speaking of lies that the funding formula sold us, one of the assets of passing a funding formula for this year was that we wouldn't get service packages. And lo and behold, uh, with the capital and operating budgets, there is many a service package being proposed by the Edmonton Police Service. Yeah, the police have proposed $132 million in capital projects. And uh, they say these are critical projects that are unfunded over the next four years. And I'm pretty sure my memory is correct here, Troy, that the chair of the police commission, John McDougal, when they were having that debate about funding formulas, said something to the effect that I don't believe any service packages will be brought forward if this funding formula goes ahead. And yet here we are in the thick of budget with another more than $100 million in funding requested. That's just on the capital side. Speaking of $100 million for capital, we talked a little bit about percentage increases and how those translated to dollars. And we reached out to the city and got a little clarification. So one of the key metrics to remember in all these budget discussions is how much does this bag of money translate to my taxes at the end of the line? And the city said that for about every $100 million that's borrowed, that's equivalent to 0.4 or around half a percent increase on the end property tax load. And that's for debt servicing. And that's sort of the primary connection between the capital budget, where we might fund things with debt, and the operating budget, which is what is actually impacted when we talk about your taxes going up or down. The other connection the city pointed out to us is that some of the things they approve on the capital budget side have operating impacts, of course. 
And so there's about $57 million worth of operating funding from previous capital budgets that's included in this this operating budget. So those are the two connections. There's a debt service cost when we take on debt to build things that goes into the operating. And there's also, you know, the cost to operate the infrastructure that we're building. And of course, even that 0.4% increase for debt servicing, that won't be front loaded on one year. For example, something like the bike plan, where it's funded $200 million out to 2030, that's the capital cost required. Well, you wouldn't load 0.8% in year one, it would be gradually increased over the years as the project develops and progresses. That's right. Yeah. Well, of course, I might have teased a lead right there. The bike plan is coming up as an item of debate. As you're listening to this, dear listener, it will have already happened. We're recording Thursday evening, but it is the first item of debate Friday morning. Uh, So we will likely get councillors voting on it. And what will they be voting on? Well, that's the effect of the nearly 70 capital budget amendments that council made Wednesday evening. And I believe, looking at this list, I might be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure, Troy, that the most amendments on this list are related to the bike plan. The very first one it was from Mayor Sohi and seconded by uh, Karen Tang, and it asks for the bike plan, as previously outlined, approach one to be approved uh, with funding from tax-supported debt. And then we have a whole series of additional amendments from Cartmel, who tried to reduce it to $30 million dollars. Councillor Rutherford tried to increase it to $200 million. Pretty interesting range of, uh, of numbers that have been thrown around for this bike plan implementation. The big things that are at issue in this bike plan debate are two things. One, the option that they're selecting, and two is the bucket of money. So there's three options for the bike plan, and what it comes down to is basically consultation and implementation. Option one of the bike plan is fast, fast, fast. Let's do this as fast as possible. So think like the downtown bike grid where it's temporary infrastructure and it's adaptable. Consultation wise for this option one, the city plans to just kind of like install it and then deal with the consequences and adapt with it, which is appealing to me. Yeah, for sure. Uh, This contrasts with option two, which is bureaucratic nightmare bike plan. Uh, I think I would (laughs) characterize it as it is the sort of PDDM model. It's They plan, they design, they consult it to death, and then they build a subpar product at the end. That's option two. And none of the councillors have uh, proposed option two, just to be clear. Correct, yes. The other one at debate is option three, which is administration's preferred option as well. And it is sort of a hybrid where some of the easy wins would be done via rapid implementation, but some of the longer out more complicated implementations because, you know, not everything is straight 90 degree roads. Sometimes you have constraints. Those would be planned with more of the typical city process and installed as more permanent infrastructure. Uh, So those are the three options. And then there's a bucket of money associated with each of those to fund the bike plan sort of in total by 2030 would cost around $200 million. Uh, So that's where Mayor Sohi's initial motion for $100 million came from. It's, okay, the first four years, let's fund half of it, $100 million. And so where we're at with the latest amendment to this is $201 million is the total with funding from tax-supported debt, and this would use approach three, as you've just outlined. Options on the floor, Councillor Tim Cartmel threw out the good $30 million because... That seems like a number. Let's put it on the table. (laughs) Councillor Karen Tang, without really justifying her reasons at all or adequately exploring it, said, 
I want to do what Counselor Tim Cartmel did, but make it 50 instead. Uh, we'll have to listen to see where that number is coming from. Of course, counselors like Karen Principe will vote to cut it entirely, and we'll have to see how that tension unfolds. Yeah, my sense is that you know, we're just not going to get cut entirely. Something's going to get approved here. I guess it's a question of of how much. And I think there's hopefully enough support on council to, to go with one of the bigger numbers. But you can probably look it up on Twitter right now. I'm sure Troy will have tweeted about it by this point when you're listening. Uh, you mentioned Cartmel there. Let's talk about Councillor Cartmel for a minute. He wrote a blog post last week alleging that you know, the Terwilliger Drive expansion project could be at risk because, oh my goodness, uh, some councillors asked questions about it. Troy, I looked through the amendments. There's not a single one related to Terwilliger Drive. Shocker. Uh, it looks like it wasn't at risk after all. There was also scant few budget amendments related to the Yellowhead Trail freeway conversion. While we're debating all these small pieces of infrastructure, the two largest major roadway projects seemed to have gone on unscathed. One of the other transportation-related ones that mm, caught my eye and was in the news was the 100th Street Pedestrian Bridge, which we've talked about on the show before. Mayor Sohi put forward a proposal to axe this project, essentially, to unfund it, to free up about, what is it, $18 million or so? And I think it's worth pausing for a moment here to talk about how this process was done, because you said Mayor Sohi is axing this downtown... Well, well, he made the motion, yeah. Correct, yeah. Uh, so... Council has a lot of budget amendments that they want to make. What Mayor Sohi said is that he worked with friendly councillors' offices and whoever would collaborate with him, and they basically hashed out what they were looking for from the budget, because I think it was very clear from both our previous episodes and from councillors' comments that in general, council was not super happy with the proposed budget, at least for the capital. Uh, so what Mayor Sohi did is he got together with a bunch of councillors, we don't know who, they put together what they would like to see in the budget, and then he tabled a lot of amendments that could come from, theoretically, all of them. That way, no councillor is taking the heat or attacking another councillor's plan, and it's it's a pre-compromise. Uh, so he had to drink several glasses of water while he was reading it all out <laughs> into the record because he has to read every number, including all the funding per year. Uh, it's quite a process, uh, quite wasteful. But he read that into the record, and one of these, of course, was the 100th Street Bridge, which, Mac, to be honest, I'm not going to miss. It was a cool bridge. We talked about it, but it was $17, 18000000 million, and I don't think anyone thinks we really need that right now. Yeah, I think that will probably be supported. And uh, as, as much as I'm disappointed to see any sort of funding for pedestrian infrastructure cut, I get it in this case. It would be nice if that $18 million could have come from freeway, you know, as you pointed out earlier. But yes, I don't think that we're going to see a whole bunch of pushback on this at, uh, at council. And I just want to say I really like the mayor's approach here, right? So he started with five potential cuts and 12 potential increases uh, with his uh, his motions. But the idea of kind of taking cover for the councillors on some of these uh, items is, I think, a smart way to go. And hopefully that will help facilitate the amendment voting process when we get there. One of the other big things that was tabled by Mayor Sohi was high-level bridge. Mayor Sohi, of course, has been a huge advocate for the high-level line. He's been very excited about the project. His spiritual predecessor, I think some would call him, Don Iveson, was also a huge champion of the high-level line. And according to this capital budget amendment, high-level line is not to be funded in the next four years. He tabled a motion to cut $70 million from the high-level bridge redevelopment, which would ostensibly 
remove some of the top deck redevelopment. Yeah, this is one of those really interesting amendments too, because if you read, you start reading and it says new capital profile, high level bridge rehabilitation, be approved with the following change, reduced $70 million. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I understand that we would get some planning and design and as you say, one of the scenarios, but not the one that everybody was hoping for. Well, I shouldn't say everybody, certain people are hoping for. Everybody recording right now was hoping for. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. At issue at the high level bridge is going to be the east deck. That's the very narrow deck, which has been identified as a huge barrier for active transportation in the area. That's going to cost about $20 million to do. Now, Mayor Sohi has proposed that we fund the east deck widening. Mm-hmm. Councillors like Councillor Cartmel have suggested perhaps we could save $20 million by not doing that east deck. The bike plan and some of our active transportation plans really do hinge on the high-level bridge as being a good corridor to cross the river. I expect that $20 million for the east deck widening to be a very contentious point. I think a lot of what Amarjeet Sohi was trying to do here when he cut the $70 million for the upper deck development is saying, okay, let's scale back this so we can really invest in these other places like the bike plan and like affordable housing. And if it's cuts on the high-level bridge for cuts everywhere else, I don't know that it'll have worked out exactly like he hoped. Yeah, okay, well, that one remains to be seen. Sounds like Councilor Carmel might be a bit of a lead of opposition to uh, to some of these active transportation ones. And if I had to hazard a guess, I would think that he was holding Michael Jans in his mind when he was concerned about Terwilliger Drive. As we pointed out, Councilor Jans did not propose an amendment to cut that, but he did propose cutting the William Harlack Park Rehabilitation Project by $50 million. This one caught me a little bit out of left field, and I think also caught council a little bit out of left field. Uh, Horlack Park is, you know, a widely celebrated park and the redevelopment is uh, long overdue. This motion only got tabled because it got one of Andrew Knack's signature democracy seconds. When a motion is clearly not going to receive a second, Andrew Knack will second it just so it can get on the floor and be debated for democracy, as he likes to say. Uh, So (laughs) if you're Michael Jans and you're receiving that democracy second, you got to know it's going to be a 12 to 1 vote. (laughs) I guess uh, we'll find out. I I mean, I feel like this came about because of... uh, consternation. And I am I think a lot of councillors have heard quite a bit of anger about the idea that the park is going to be closed for three years for this rehabilitation project. I don't think that means we need to not do the rehabilitation. I just wish we could find another way to do it without completely shutting the thing down. Uh, don't let public consternation about anything affect your budgetary planning, at least not if you're city manager Andre Corbald. This week, Andre Corbald, the city manager, was talking to council about climate and what the city is doing or not doing on the climate file. And Mac, I think I would characterize this as completely galling and unprecedented, the comments that he made. Yeah, I mean, shocking, surprising, you know, pick your adjective. Essentially what Andre Corbold said is that there aren't enough people concerned about climate change for it to have made its way into the budget. And he said that the folks that spoke at the budget public hearing were, quote, clearly climate people, climate action folks, advocacy folks, and activists, end quote. And he suggested to council that until we've heard from a million people about why this needs to be in there, it doesn't seem like a priority. Troy, my math is pretty good most of the time. There were not a million people eligible in Edmonton to vote in the last election. Here's where I'll stop you, because... A lot of people picked up on this one million comment. And I said the same thing about when Jason Kenney was premier and 
Rachel Notley was trying to dunk on him. When there's so much to legitimately dunk on, you don't need to grasp at straws. Andre Corbalt, in his comments, was clearly not saying that he needed one million total people to show up. He was trying to say that the entire city wasn't speaking with a unified voice that they wanted climate change. Okay, sure, let's give him that. It's still completely inappropriate and not his place. <laughs> we don't need to misinterpret what he's saying in order for this to be arguably what I would call a fireable offense. Council has directed that climate change is super important. Council has declared a climate emergency. Council has passed the energy transition strategy. Council has passed the city plan, all which require dedicated climate action. Council has required a carbon budget. And the carbon budget says we are not doing what we need to do. So for Andre Corbald to get in front of council and say, I didn't follow your direction because I don't feel, and he used the word feel, that Edmontonians are quite there yet. He's not elected. It's not his job to feel what the population is thinking. It's there to execute council's policy directives. And I think admitting in front of council that you declined to do your job. That seems a little bit galling to me. Absolutely. And, you know, yes, you're correct about the million uh, number. But, you know, even if we just think about percentages, the city has probably engaged Edmontonians about climate change almost more than anything else over the last number of years in developing all the different plans that you mentioned. And a really significant number, 70%, 75% have all said that the city needs to act on climate change. I still think it's a bit inappropriate to try and, and and make it sound like we need to have everybody on board with this. That's not the way that any of this works. And he then also tried to you know highlight some of the things the city is doing already on climate change as if that's enough. But I, I agree with you. I think this is a huge problem for council. I think they were really surprised by his comments. You can kind of hear that in the clips that were shared on, on Twitter. And if you go back and, and listen to that meeting, I mean, after his comments, you know, there was this uh, uproar online. And then on December 5th, he issued a statement clarifying his comments. He didn't apologize for what he said. He apologized for creating the impression that the climate crisis is not as real as it is and that Edmontonians are not concerned about this. So not exactly an apology, but more of a recognition of the facts here, which is that city council and Edmontonians both want to see action on climate change. Yeah, you saw councillors push back in the moment for his comment. Councillor Wright saying, mm, that's a really high bar to set for consultation. And councillors like Ashley Salvador saying, We've heard through surveys and through electoral processes that Edmontonians are very, very much on board with climate change. Yeah. I think this democratic process is being reflected in the amendments because, cut to today, Amarjeet Sohi, the mayor, has tabled several climate-focused capital budget amendments, and we're sure to see operating budget amendments focused on climate tabled in the upcoming week. This is a clear issue where council is saying no, we have heard from the population, we're going to execute this direction and we're going to amend the budget. And you may hear that and say, okay, well, this is a good news story. Why do we care? There's a political fallout to all of this. Most years when city administration puts out a budget, they put out a budget and it says, oh, the tax increase is going to be five and a half percent. And then council puts their big boy pants on and they says, okay, we wanted all these things, but let's cut this back. The inverse is true this year, where council has said they wanted all these things, the city manager neglected to put them in the proposed budget and announced a 3.5% property tax increase. That's going to be higher. While you said that Mayor Sohi had tabled some cuts in the capital budget, for example, 
The additions outweigh the cuts. We are going to be increasing this budget. And it almost feels like a political move by city administration, putting council in this unenviable position of having to fight for every scrap that they wanted, rather than giving them the political win of paring down their requests, as was typical. And for city administration to be taking a political stance, that seems so far out of the realm of kosher that council has to be scratching their heads, looking around, and maybe counting some votes. Yeah, let's remember that council has one employee, and that is the city manager. Two. That's true. They have the city auditor. But the auditor never does anything to make them, you know, have to spend more money. (laughs) Just to give a bit of clarity on what Mayor Sohi proposed, one of those climate-related amendments he suggested was called Climate Resilient City Facility Upgrades. This would be deep energy retrofits of City of Edmonton facilities to the tune of $53 million over this four-year capital budget. This is, a, I think, a really strong recognition of the fact that almost anything we approve in this budget is not going to be enough based on the research that has been done and the amount of investment that is required. But at minimum, the city of Edmonton itself can spend a whole bunch of money per council's direction to take some action against climate and hopefully in the process inspire some of the necessary investment from the community. If you want to talk about a city facility that won't be built to a net zero standards, look no further than the Lewis Farms Rec Center, which wasn't quite built to that standard. But there's a motion on the table to even reduce it further. Uh, Councillor Jans has tabled the capital motion to reduce the funding for Lewis Farms Rec Center to $185 million. So look for that to be another spicy debate. I suspect we're going to see that motion fail uh, if you start counting the votes and hearing councillor opinions. Perhaps, but we are in a contentious budget period and saving on the order of $100 million, especially with Andrew Nacton's dueling motion to increase Lewis Farms funding. I don't know that that could be a very contentious motion as it unravels. Yeah, Councillor Knack proposed in spending another $58 million, seconded by Councillor Principe, which I thought was a little interesting. Uh, with Councillor Knack proposing, you know, $58 million more for this, this would also be from tax-supported debt. Uh, did he explain what that's for, Troy? Did you Have you heard anything about why? What would we spend another $58 million on? Well, it's my understanding, and we've talked about this a lot, it's hard to follow everything that has happened with Lewis Farms. But city administration had said that there were cost overruns on Lewis Farms. Things like inflation and increased capital costs and uh, design changes and all these sort of confluence of factors has led to cost overruns on Lewis Farms rec centers. And I think this motion was just to fund the original design at a new price. Yeah. So this has just been a small subset of the more than 60 capital budget amendments that have been tabled as part of this process. Mac, was there any other ones that caught your eye? Well, I want to mention this one. So Councillor Cartmel, seconded by Councillor Knack, put forward a motion, an amendment rather, to hold some things in abeyance. So the exhibition lands project, the river crossing redevelopment, industrial and uh, commercial land investment and development, this project to transform the city lands that are deemed surplus, all of these things would be held in abeyance pending a report 
on the advantages and disadvantages of forming a municipal development corporation. So this would be a new third-party corporate entity. It would develop the city-owned land. It would sell the developed land on the open market to builders. It would partner with the private sector to get those things done. It would have a board of directors appointed by council, and the city would be the sole shareholder, so not unlike some of the other organizations that have been set up, and all this land would be transferred to the Municipal Development Corporation. I thought that was interesting. This is something that's come up a few times in Edmonton. It's never really gone anywhere, but it has been a model that has been used in Calgary and and other places. So I'll be very interested to see if uh, there's support for that from council. This was, of course, something that uh, former councillor Michael Walters and Michael Oshry had talked at length about uh, this MDC. My honorable mentions on this file uh, are not so much a uh, amendment or even a set of amendments, but more a counselor. I'd like to give a special shout out to Councillor Karen Principe, who I think, even though we talked about Councillor Cartmel being sort of adversarial and uh, talking about cuts, Councillor Karen Principe was the clear antagonist in this budget discussion. Uh, when the initial motion was put forward uh, with the process after council debated for hours about the round robin by which they'd get to debate and table emotions, there was an exception that the mayor could table several multi-part amendments and could do a couple things outside the process. And this was so that he could read this omnibus mm-hmm. set of amendments in that council had collaborated on. Uh, one of the councillors that voted against that provision, she separated it out, separated from the rest of the procedure for voting and voted against uh, Mayor Sohi being able to read in that omnibus. So already establishing herself as a little bit of a loose cannon fighting against the power in this budget meeting. Councillor Karen Principe used her time uh, to table several amendments. There were two or three about road widening, uh, one about making sure the police gets enough funding that the city clerk actually said, you know, what you've done is you've actually said basically four distinct things about giving the police more funding. We're probably going to split that into four separate amendments. So one to four amendments about uh, not cutting any police funding and giving them more funding for equipment. But to top it all off, she said, I've just got one more amendment. Let's cut the funding for walkability and greenability downtown. Masterclass, John D. successor there, Karen Bay. <laughs> Congrats. Yeah, $10 million for radio life cycle, $14 million, $20 million, another $6 million, lots of millions of dollars for police IT and police equipment. This green and walkable downtown one is particularly aggravating to me. So she proposed decreasing this by uh, $8 million spread over the four years um, and reducing the CRL levies by $21 million over that. And it's, as you say, to unfund the planning, design and delivery of green and walkable. This is one of the few things in the original CRL that was really for the people who live and work and use downtown. It wasn't a building. It wasn't an arena. It wasn't any of those kinds of things. Green and walkable was supposed to be, you know, the thing that we got. If we sucked it up and we paid for the new arena, we would get these really necessary improvements to downtown to make it a more walkable place, to make it a more accessible and inviting place. And for this now to be on the table, I don't think this is going to pass, but for this to be on the table is just particularly disappointing because, you know, it was one of the things that helped sell the downtown CRL, I think, to folks like me. So like you said, this is on the table. The process for budget is council puts everything on the table, all the increases, all the decreases, all the amendments to the amendments, everything that they want to either pass or cut goes on the table 
and then they debate them all in sequence. That's going to be starting Friday morning with the bike plan. It's drawn first ballot of the first thing to be discussed. Go figure, bike lanes are going to be that lightning rod at City Hall. Indeed. They'll go through, they'll do this for the capital budget and put it off to the side and say, we've got the stamp on this. And then they'll do the entire process again for the operating budget, table all these amendments, debate them all, put them sequestered to the side and say, "Mm, this looks good for the operating budget. Finance will go through, tell them, this is how much you're increasing the taxes by. They'll have a last chance to say, well, geez, am I going to lose an election? Am I going (laughs) to satisfy my constituents? Make some last minute changes. And then they have a final vote on the budget. And that's when it's pass fail. And that will occur, you know, at the end of next week, probably maybe into later. Council is scheduled all the way until December 16th for budget. If I was to predict anything, I would say there's one guaranteed vote against the budget. That will be Councillor Tim Cartmel and probably Councillor Karen Principe as well. So we'll probably get two votes against, but the budget will probably pass. Mac, you're a bit of a legal policy wonk here. What happens if the budget doesn't pass? Is that like a confidence motion? Do we get to elect a new mayor? What happens? I think it means the municipal affairs minister takes over the city. (laughs) No, they must pass a budget at least for 2023. I mean, they're not required to use a multi-year budgeting process like council does, but at, at least for 2023, we must pass the budget by the end of the calendar year. And the end of the calendar year is a perfect time to look at your power bills and decide, hey, do I got to switch to park power? This episode's brought to you by them. They're your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. They offer internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Albertans have a choice of who they pay their utility bills to, and Park Power is happy to provide free, no obligations comparisons. And if you decide to switch providers, it's easy, and you can feel good knowing that you're supporting local business and helping to give back to your communities with your utility bills. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. We've only scratched the surface, Troy. Lots more budget to come. And we won't take any more time. We'll be back next week. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.